Well, the previous lesson on antediluvian degeneracy ended with a very vivid and a dramatic contrast between what the eyes of the Lord saw on the earth in verse 5 of chapter 6 and what they beheld in one man who stood out as a refreshing oasis in the midst of a very dark and a very dreary uh, demonic desert. And that man's name, we learned in verse 8, was what? Noah. And he is one of the greatest and the most courageous men whose record is presented for us in the eternal word of the living God. Living in a world literally given over to everything vile and wicked that men and demons together could come up with, Noah stood fast in the faith that he was taught by his forefathers, his godly forefathers, uh, Lamech, Methuselah, and Enoch. He truly, in a spiritual sense, was a giant in the land in those days. Remember we talked about giants last year. Well, he truly was, in a spiritual sense, a giant. And it's our pleasure this morning to turn to look at him a little more closely, learn more about him, not only in this lesson, but we'll be looking at him, of course, in the lessons to follow as we look at the contents of not only chapter 6, but chapter 7, 8, and 9 as well, because all those chapters have to do with Noah and the flood. Well, as we turn now to our consideration of Noah and the ark, taken from Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 to 22, we're going to look, first of all, at the joyful task of studying God's man. God's man is Noah himself. And to do this, we're not only going to look at verses 9 and 10 of this chapter, but we're also going to flip over to that famous Hall of Faith chapter, which is Hebrews chapter what? 11, and look at verse 7 to learn more also there about Noah. And secondly, in our coverage of verses 11 to 22, we're going to look at God's plan. And in this section, um, we are going to look at his plan in dealing with the corruption and the wickedness of that antediluvian world. And also we will look at his covenant with Noah. And then we will learn some very interesting statistics and facts about the vessel of salvation from judgment, which Noah was instructed to build, that being, of course, the ark, as well as some reasons why the flood was global, worldwide, rather than just a local flood. And we'll talk more about more reasons why it was global as we get into chapter 7 and 8 and 9. But this morning we're going to hit on a few of those reasons why I believe it was a worldwide flood, not just a local flood. And then we're going to discuss also whether the ark was truly large enough to house all the cargo and all the various pairs of creatures that it needed to carry. Was it big enough? <laughs> and we're going to learn how the ark also was a beautiful picture in type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that the subtitle for this study is Jesus in Genesis. And once again, we're going to see that truly Jesus is in the book of Genesis. So with that introduction, oh, by the way, the, the areas we'll cover under God's plan are the corruption, the craft, the cataclysm, the covenant, the Christ, the cargo, and the concurrence. <laughs> Had fun doing that. All right, let's start by looking at God's man, and for this we'll read Genesis 6, verses 9 and 10. Well, let me read verse 8 because we sort of just touched on it real lightly at the end of our lesson last week. Verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. 
<clears throat> Noah was a just man and a perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was the last pre-flood patriarch of the godly line of Adam through Seth. When he was born, actually six of his godly ancestors were still alive, and those were Enos, Canaan, Mahalaliel, Jared, Methuselah, and Lamech. And the only reason Enoch wasn't still alive was why? Well, he was still alive, but he wasn't on earth anymore. It was because the, earth, the Lord took him. However, by the time Noah was 600 years old, which was when the flood came, all of his godly forefathers had died. Remember, Methuselah died the very year of the flood. So he was the only hope for the continuation of the godly seed of the woman from which the Redeemer would come, the Savior. And this fact alone would have made Noah the supreme target of Satan's attacks. You see, one man, only one man, stood between Satan and his victory over God. If Satan could succeed in corrupting this one man or in having somebody murder him, then Satan would be, uh, he would prove himself superior to God because he would have proven that God was incapable of keeping his Genesis 3.15 promise. So one man in all the world was left who still believed God's Genesis 3.15 promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And therefore, by God's grace, this one man obeyed God in the face of worldwide ridicule and mockery and persecution. Satan and his wicked forces had successfully, and we talked about this last time, how they said successfully had managed to corrupt and contaminate the entire world of men and women. But the one man that Satan desired above all others to contaminate with his evil was a man who was immune to his attacks because of the protecting shield of the grace of God. What did it say in verse 8? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Everything good that we read about Noah in the scripture, as we'll be looking at today, whether it has to do with his faith or his righteousness or his courage or his obedience or his preaching, his steadfastness, his blamelessness, all of these things were due to the fact that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The grace of God always, always comes first. It always comes before anything that you and I can do at all. Anything we do in this life that's good is only because of the grace of God. So first Noah found grace, verse 8. And then, because of that grace, he became, verse 9, a just man, which means that he was declared to be righteous, and he was declared to be perfect in his generations, which means that he was blameless among his contemporaries. So he was righteous in God's eyes. That's, you know, a just man. That's in God's eyes. He was righteous, and he was blameless in man's eyes. Men might uh, persecute him and mock him and ridicule him, but they couldn't find anything 
that was wrong with him. Anything to point the finger at. Actually, the the Hebrew word for perfect there in verse 9 um, speaks of a person who is not sinlessly perfect. Of course, he was a sinner, as all men are after Adam are born sinners. But he was a moral, of course, he was a saved man because he believed God. Um, but he was moral and he was pure. He was an honest man of integrity before others. In other words, he was perfect. He, I mean, whole. The word perfect means he was whole and complete and he was uncontaminated in his life before other men. So because of God's grace, Noah found no attraction whatsoever to the wicked, worldly, Cainite civilization which was all around him and which even by his time had managed to um, corrupt and consume the godly line of the Sethites. Instead, Noah found a far greater attraction in the Lord God himself. His life, Noah's life, revolves around God. It says that he walked with God, and he is the only other saved sinner in all the Bible of whom it is said that he walked with God, the only other one besides Enoch. Remember, we talked when Enoch walked so closely with God that God just took him. However, uh, Noah it seems, would serve God's purposes better if he was left on earth, right? Aren't you glad God didn't just take him? (laughs) Or that would have been the end of everything. And so he would, in effect, be the new Adam of the post-flood world because everybody goes back to Noah. Everyone in this room goes back to Noah. It's interesting to think about the fact that the first man to populate the The old world was Adam, who, you know, before he sinned, walked with God. Remember, in the cool of the day, he walked in the garden with God. He was the first man to populate the old world. The first man to populate heaven was Enoch, who also walked with God. And now we're finding out that the first man who would populate the new world after the flood was another man who also is said to have walked with God, and that man was Noah. And those are the only three in the scripture that it says that they walked with God. So in Genesis 6-9, we are told three things about Noah. We are told that he was a just man, he was perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. Noah is also included among the 15 men and women of faith who are listed over in Hebrews chapter 11. However, he is the only one in that whole chapter whose description both begins and ends with the words, by faith. And so I think that, again, makes him very unique. Let's go over to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, right before the book of James, and right after that little book of Philemon, if you can find the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and look at verse 7. Because in that verse, we learn seven truths about the faith of Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Notice, by faith, by faith, begins and ends that verse. All right, first of all here, we are told about the object of Noah's faith. His faith faith was placed in 
God's word. It says, by faith, Noah being warned of God. So his faith was placed into the right thing, on the right thing. His faith was in God's warning, God's word. He believed God's words of warning regarding what? The coming judgment. Of course, we know he also believed God's word about the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman. And uh, he, he believed God's word from Enoch and his forefathers about the ungodliness of his day. But here it says he believed God's words of warning regarding the coming judgment. Secondly, we learn not only about the object of his faith, but the extent of his faith. He believed and laid hold of things not seen as yet, it tells us. He walked by faith and not by sight. You know, of course, that uh, Noah labored for years, perhaps as many as 120 years, building a huge ark, a boat, in the middle of nowhere, I mean, the mid- on dry ground, nowhere even close to a large ocean. And he had never seen rain, much less a storm, much less a flood of the magnitude that would require a boat the size that he was instructed to build. And yet Noah didn't even question God. We'll see that later this morning. Didn't even question him about what he's supposed to do. He simply responded to God's message about building the ark and all that he had to do. He responded by faith. He had absolutely nothing to go on except God's words, but it was sufficient for him, and it should be sufficient for us too. All right, third, we read of the evidence of his faith, and that's given in the words, he moved with fear. You know, James in the, Old, in the New Testament says that faith without works is what? Dead. Genuine faith always puts action to its claim. True faith visibly manifests itself in obedience. That's how you can know one way of checking yourself to make sure you're really saved. True faith will be uh, visible in obedience, in faithfulness, and in, you know, good works for the Lord. Noah truly, truly had faith, not only in the good message about uh, the coming Redeemer, but he also had faith in the bad message about the coming judgment. So he moved with fear. That is the evidence of his faith. And the fruit of his faith was that he prepared an ark. Fifth, we find that the great benefit of his faith was that his house, which meant, of course, his family, was saved. It says Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house. So that's the benefit of his faith. God honors those who put genuine faith in his word. Noah's faith resulted in the salvation of his house. The sixth truth that we read here in Hebrews 11 regarding his faith has to do with the witness of his faith. By preparing the ark, he witnessed to the whole world of coming judgment. It says in 2 Peter 2.5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So we could say, in effect, that while he had a hammer in one hand, obediently building the ark, even though he didn't understand everything, 
he had, in effect, a Bible in the other hand. Even though he didn't have a Bible, he had, you know, he was preaching God's Word. So he was kind of like Nehemiah, hammer in one hand and the Word of God in the other. He was a witness by both his words and his works, which is exactly what you and I should be as well. Witnesses by not only our works, but also by our words. You know, we do need to tell people the good news, not just live it out in front of them. Um, And so against a hostile and very godless world, a mocking world, he persevered for 120 years, didn't quit. He didn't grow weary in well-doing. He didn't grow faint when year after year he was labeled a fanatic and an eccentric. Can you imagine, just imagine being in his shoes and the mockery that he took for what he was doing? I mean, they just scoffed him and thought he had really lost it. But he didn't care what men thought. He only cared what God thought. He was a preacher of righteousness, we're told, because he was righteous. He lived righteously. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, I have his books on Genesis, he says, quote, The more Noah thought of the judgment of God, the more he was aware of the ungodliness of those around him. The more he was aware of their ungodliness, the closer he walked with God. The closer he walked with God, the more he was aware of judgment. Again, the closer he walked with God, the more aware he was of evil and unrighteousness. This is what happened to Noah. He walked with God, and this led him to live blamelessly and preach righteousness. End of quote. Well, the seventh factor regarding Noah's faith, about which we learn from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, is his reward of faith. He became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Not only did Noah receive a reward in this life by having his, you know, wonderful close walk with God and also having his wife and his three sons and their wives saved, But his greatest reward was going to be received in the next life. As a child of God, it tells us he became an heir of God and a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom he believed. You know, even though he hadn't seen him, he knew because of God's word that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush Satan. Well, Noah was not only a man of great faith, but he was also a man who bore fruit. Now, it might not seem like a whole lot of fruit to only have three sons and their wives, along with his own wife, listed as those who entered the ark, you know, having believed God um, Noah's words about coming judgment. If we looked at that and made a judgment on it, we'd say, well, that sure isn't after 120 years of preaching. I don't think I'd send in my mission support for him. He only had his own family saved. So to our minds, we might say, well, that wasn't a whole lot of fruit. However, it was from his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that every person alive today was descended. In addition, it was through his son Shem that Abraham would be born. And it was through Abraham that the nation of Israel would come. And it was from the nation of Israel that who was born? The Messiah, the promised Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how could you ever say that Noah wasn't fruitful? I mean, he was extremely fruitful. We have to, you know, we have to look at that in our own eyes. 
as well. You know, we have to have that perspective. We might look at our lives and say, oh, I am just not bearing very much fruit. But who knows but God who you might, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, who you might be influencing for Christ, like one of your children or your grandchildren or a child in a Sunday school class or someone you witness to somewhere along in your life, who through them great and mighty things might happen. So you aren't going to really know about your fruit until you get to heaven. Furthermore, he was very fruitful in the testimony that he left behind. So he not only built an ark, he built a great testimony by way of his godly character and his strong faith and his obedience and his diligence, his steadfastness and his purity in the midst of worldwide corruption. You know, he is mentioned, Noah is mentioned 50 times in the eternal word of God. 50 times in about nine different books of the Bible. And that is leaving behind a great testimony and a lot of fruit, wouldn't you say? That's a lot of fruit to his account. Okay, we've looked at the man. Now let's let's look at the plan. And for this, we're going to first of all go back and talk a little bit more about the corruption of that day in verses 11 to 13. So if you'll go back to Genesis 6, let's look at verses 11 to 13. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In these verses, we again, as over in verse 5, are given God's own assessment of the condition of that pre-flood earth during the days of Noah. Everywhere God looked on the earth, everywhere he saw corruption. And the Hebrew word for corruption there is a very strong word. I mean, it was extremely wicked. And everywhere he looked, he also saw violence. Remember back in chapter 1, he had commanded man to fill the earth? You know, be fruitful and fill the earth. Well, man had certainly done that through his obsession with the flesh. He had filled the earth literally with people, but he had also filled the earth with violence. Everywhere, vice and violence were publicly flaunted fearlessly right in the face of a holy God. So to the one man who stood firm for his creator and his redeemer in the wake of worldwide peer pressure. You know, you ever hear of peer pressure? <laughs> this is it. This, it doesn't get any worse than this. A whole world against one man. In the face of worldwide peer pressure, he, God, uh, to Noah, God revealed his plan for destroying the wickedness of man on the earth. Now, the last time, remember, God had spoken about his plan to destroy man, along with all the beasts and the creeping things and the birds, he spoke just to himself within his own triune godhood. We saw that back in verses 3 and 7. He was, he was saying what he was going to do. He said, my spirit won't always strive with man. And then down in verse 7, he said, I will destroy man. But he was just talking to himself. This time, however, he revealed his plan to Noah. In Genesis 6:13, the Lord said to Noah, and whether this was done verbally or through a vision or a dream, we simply don't know. 
He said, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, notice that he said he was going to destroy mankind with the earth. Now, those who hold the view that the the Noahic flood was merely a local flood, not a worldwide flood, you know, didn't involve the entire earth, they have a problem here that they have to try to explain to us because in verse 13, the Hebrew word eth, E-T-H, is used um, to mean with. It does mean with, that little word. It does not mean from. It means with, just like your Bible says. In other words, God is saying that he would destroy man with the earth, not from the earth. So the earth, too, was going to be destroyed, the first earth. I mean, we're still on that earth, but it was a completely different looking and uh, the climate and everything was different about that earth than the one we live on, even though it's the same ball, (laughs) you know, the same mass, the same planet. The post-flood earth, the one you and I know, is very, very different from the pre-flood earth. The uplifting, and we'll talk more about this when we get into the flood, but the uplifting of the oceanic waters from beneath the earth, the release of that um, water vapor canopy around the earth, above the earth, the formation of our present ocean basins and our present continents and our present mountain ranges all contributed to the flood creating an earth with a vastly different topography and climatology than what, what, the, what Noah knew before the flood. The Apostle Peter certainly believed not just in a local flood. Peter believed in a worldwide flood because uh, in 2 Peter 3, 6, he said the world that then was being overflowed with water did what? Perished. Even though it's the same planet, it's, it's such a different world. So let's look now at the craft, all right? This will be the interesting part. Verses 14 to 16, the craft. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms that shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Beginning with verse 14 here, God gave Noah very specific instructions on how to construct a huge, flat-bottomed, barge-like vessel. Huge, flat-bottomed barge-like, kind of like a box, which was not designed for speed. There was no need for it to be fast, right? Wasn't going anywhere. Wasn't designed for speed or navigability, just for survival. It was was, uh, designed in order to house two of every kind of air-breathing animal and seven of some clean animals, which we'll talk about, and also was designed to float in, high, in, a, in a highly stable manner amidst tremendous storms such as, as this earth has never seen since or after. Um, so, and this structure, of course, you know, was called an ark. 
The ark was also to be the one and only way of escape from coming judgment. And Noah was to preach, while he was building this ark, he was to preach an open invitation to all men to enter into this ark for salvation from the wrath of God. Now, the Hebrew word which is used for ark in Genesis 6 is not the same word which is later used to speak of the ark of the covenant, you know, that was in the Holy of Holies. It was, it's not the same word. However, it is the same word which is used in reference to the ark into which little baby Moses was placed as his mother set him down in the bulrushes there in Egypt in Exodus 2.3. So it was an ancient word for a box which was intended to float on water. And Moses' little ark was also covered with pitch as well. Now the first thing Noah was told by God was that the ark was to be built of what kind of wood? Gopher wood. Now, although they aren't quite certain... Uh, what it was, most Bible scholars do believe that gopher wood was the same as cypress, which is an evergreen tree. And it was a, a very good wood to use in shipbuilding back in the ancient days because it's highly adaptable. And it, it's um, very long-lasting when it's soaked in water. So gopher wood, um, cypress, was therefore also the common wood from which ancient people built their coffins because it was known to be so incorruptible. So it was used for coffins. In fact, the gates of St. Peter's in Rome were made of gopher wood, and even after a thousand years, they showed absolutely no wear at all. So it's very, uh, very good wood to have made the ark with. Well, after being told to make the ark of gopher wood, Noah was uh, then instructed to make rooms in the ark. And you might be interested to know that the little he- the Hebrew word for rooms there in verse 14 is literally the word for nests. It might even say that in the footnote of your Bible. It did in mine. It's the same word for nests. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. The ark was also to be waterproofed by covering it inside and out with pitch. And the Hebrew word, which is used for pitch, is not the same word in other Old Testament passages for pitch. Not the same one. It's the word kopher, K-O-P-H-E-R. You see I have it up here. And this is very interesting because the Hebrew word kopher is is the regular word which is used throughout the Old Testament for atonement. It literally means to cover. Same word for atonement. The pitch or the kopher sealed the ark inside and out, and therefore it made it secure from the destruction which was to come upon the earth in the flood. Well, Noah was then told the size of the ark to build. And can you imagine when he heard this? (laughs) Uh, Noah was um, being told to build this monster vessel, as I said, in the middle of nowhere, far from any seaport, if they even had seaports in those days. Uh, There was no boat ramp nearby, and there was no way to ever get that vessel near water. It was just too huge. It wouldn't go anywhere. Furthermore, there had never been any rain. Okay? 
So all the people of the world, when they saw what he was doing, would surely label him as total eccentric. Even many members of his own family, as we discussed last week, like his brothers and sisters and his cousins and his aunts and his uncles, they would think that he had lost it. If they had had a mental institution in that day, they would have put him in it. Yet upon hearing the dimensions of this tremendous ark and all of its specifications, Noah simply believed God. I mean, this is great faith. (laughs) He believed God and he began to build it. You know, if it was me, I, I would wonder if I was really hearing this from God or, or if I was making it up or if it was Satan. I mean, wouldn't you kind of question these things before you just went and got your hammer and saw and started to work? But he was willing to just believe God and face the high price of rejection and loneliness and uh, ridicule and misunderstanding and persecution simply because he put his trust in God and in God's word. He was willing to pay the price of worldwide rejection for the sake of Christ. You know, the promised coming seed of the woman. I wonder where we would stand if we compared ourselves with Noah. Would we be willing to face worldwide persecution? I mean, you know, we wouldn't even have each other for support like we have today. We'd have nobody outside of our own little tiny family against the whole world. Wouldn't you finally think, well, maybe everybody else is right and I'm the one who's wrong? But this is tremendous faith. The ark was to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Now, a biblical cubit, we've talked about this before, and I'm a perfect cubit. I have to brag about something. <laughs> From my elbow to my the top of my uh, middle finger is 18 inches. That was the standard biblical cubit. But for the sake of those skeptics who do not think that the that Noah's ark would have been able big enough to carry all the creatures and the cargo that it needed to house, we're going to use the shortest cubit that was known in the ancient world, and that was a cubit which was only 17.5 inches long in order to figure our dimensions to tell you in feet how big this ark was, all right? Of course, you already see it up here. The ark using a 17.5-inch cubit was 438 feet long. That's either the equivalent of 20 basketball courts, the length of 20 basketball courts, or one-and-a-half football fields, approximately. It was 72.9 feet wide, and it was 43.8 feet high. Now, these dimensions that we are given in the Word of God tell us of a box-like structure, as you see here, just like a box, and not a curved or shaped vessel, as you would see, you know, on a big cruise boat where they're... I wish I had a picture, but you know how boats are. They're curved, and they go down to a point more like that. Um, this This ark was just like a big box. And because it was built this way, it actually had one-third more carrying capacity than a ship with sloping sides with the very same dimensions. So, it, you know, that's what it's built for, is carrying capacity and also um, a safety in, in the midst of a terrible, terrible storm. It was... They have, you know, modern shipbuilders have looked at these and have said that this this kind of a vessel of this size and everything would be almost impossible to capsize. 
It has been proven and demonstrated hydrodynamically that a box of this huge proportion would have to be turned completely vertical up and down this way in order to tip over. Even if it was tilted to an angle just slightly less than a 90 degree angle, you know, just maybe even this much instead of this way, just this much, it still would quickly right itself. That's how, how, you know, how would Noah have known this? There's no way Noah would. He'd never even seen probably a canoe before, much less a ship. There's no way he would have known how perfect to make a vessel to carry what it had to carry and to be so safe and secure in a tremendous storm. You know, it wasn't until many, many years later, thousands of years later, that a bigger vessel was ever built. It wasn't until 1858 that a bigger boat was, and that's 1858 A.D., that a bigger boat was built, and that was the Great Eastern, which was 692 feet. But still, um, as I have up here, modern shipbuilders state that the ark's dimensions are the most ideal measurements to ensure the safest and most seaworthy vessel. And yet it was built on dry land, miles from the nearest water, by a man who had no model to work from, had never built a boat before, much less this, one of this size, had probably never even seen even a rowboat, and, and had never seen rain. So, I mean, here is, again, another evidence that the scripture had to have been written by God. Even Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, would not have known about the dimensions of a, a vessel like this. Only God would know how to give instructions to build such a perfect boat for what it had to do. Well, again, using now the conservative 17.5-inch cubit, we find out that the available floor space of the inside of the ark's three decks, we're told it has three decks or stories, was over 95,000 square feet. The total volume was 1,396,000 cubic feet. And I know that means nothing to you, but this is the equivalent of 522 standard livestock boxcars, okay? So you're riding down the street, and you get to a railroad crossing, and the gate comes down just as you get there, and you have to sit there as 10 freight trains consecutively pass by you, one after another, each freight train carrying uh, 52 boxcars. That's the carrying capacity. That's how much space was available on the inside of the ark that Noah was told to build, build by God's instructions. Well, each of the three stories, the three decks, inner decks, was 10 cubits high, meaning it was 14.6 feet high, each story. And each story was divided into rooms. Remember what did I say the word means? Or nests. And they were probably of varying uh, sizes depending on the kind of animals which were to occupy or rest in those nests. Remember what Noah's name meant? Rest. Well, the animals were going to rest in their nests. Somebody could write a good poem on that, couldn't they? There was also to be a window placed in the ark, and you can see it sort of on, on this picture. See up here the way they think that's probably the best 
way that are, to, to explain how this window, you know, I'm not saying that well, but that's, it wasn't a little window like you might see on some of Noah's arcs. You know, you see a little window in the side at the top that goes like this. Well, it wasn't like that. It says um, that there was only one window, and it was a cubit opening, meaning, well, let's use 17.5 inches. Okay, so that's how, um, about, the, about from here to here, was how wide the window is. And, of course, you know that it would have to be designed so that rainwater wouldn't come in it. So they believe that it was at the top and that it went, the window went completely around the circumference of the ark and that it was located very near to the roof and in such a way perhaps like they do in modern buildings today that you see windows like that so that you'll have you know great ventilation and um, and light coming into the ark and yet the rainwater couldn't get in well the word for window is sohar uh, in Hebrew and it literally speaks of a skylight or an opening for daylight so the window provided light and air ventilation for all of the animals and the people on the board. On board, And then Noah was instructed to make a door. But there was only to be how many? One door. This would never work in a vessel nowadays. I mean, they have to have more than one door. But this one only had one door, and it was to be placed in the side of the ark. Okay, so that's about the craft. Let's look at the cataclysm. Verse All right, verse 17 says, And behold, I, remember this is God speaking, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. After giving Noah all the instructions and the details concerning um, the ark that he was to build, God then, for the first time, told Noah what the coming judgment, what form the coming judgment was going to take. You know, he had told him back in verse 13, if you look there, that he was going to destroy all flesh with the earth. But in verse 17 now, for the first time, he told Noah that it would be by way of a flood. So again, we see Noah walked by faith, not by sight, because he was told to build the what to do first before he was then told that God was going to send a flood. And that would be the way that he would accomplish his judgment on all the evil. He said, um, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth. Now, the word for flood that is used there is mabul. That's a good word. I like that word. I almost thought about calling this lesson the mabul. (laughs) I don't know why. It just appeals to me. The mabul in Hebrew. Um, And it's used here for the first time in the Bible. Now, the only time that the word mabul is used in the Old Testament is in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, and over in Psalm 29, verse 10. And therefore, we must assume that Psalm 29, 10 is a reference to this flood, the Noahic flood. When other floods are described in the Bible, the word mabul is not used. So mabul speaks only of the mighty flood of waters, which is mabul mayim in the Hebrew. It speaks only of this unique flood of Noah's days, Noah's day. And we find that this is also true in the New Testament. When the flood of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 is discussed over in the New Testament, which it is, 
often. The Greek word that is used to speak of that flood of Noah's day is kataklismos, which means, what do you hear when you hear that word, kataklismos? Cataclysm, right. It's, it's the word cataclysm. And uh, in the New Testament, when it speaks of the Noahic flood, it is not the normal Greek word for flood. It's this unique word, kataklismos. Well, the flood of Noah's day was not then, I say, at all a local flood. No local flood could possibly destroy all mankind, as it said up in verse 13, nor all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, as it says in verse 17. Also, um, it would be, in, by the way, at the end of verse 17, it, it says everything that is in the earth shall die, right? Everything shall die. And it would be, if you think about this, it would really be ludicrous I mean, Noah would really need to be put in a mental institution if he spent decades, even perhaps 120 years, building a big boat to preserve life on earth if it was only going to be a local flood. For one thing, his ark would have been far, far too large to have ever floated in, in any kind of local flood. It was just it would not have gone anywhere. It would have been too heavy. You need a tremendous amount of water for an ark that size to float. And for another thing, it would be ridiculous for Noah to have spent so much time and energy building a vessel for a local flood when all he would have had to have done, along with his family and the birds and the mammals, was just to walk <laughs> to another area, <laughs> you know, migrate somewhere else where the flood was not going to be. He could have, you know, even if he walked for 10 years, it still would have saved him 110 years of building an ark. So clearly, the Noahic flood was worldwide. He said, everything that is in the earth shall die. Okay, let's look at the covenant, verse 18. But with thee, God speaking to Noah, will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Here in this verse, God's telling of a covenant that he is going to establish with Noah. And this is the first use of the word covenant also in the Bible, which is the word berith. Covenants are going to be, as we'll see, uh, very important parts of God's redemption plan for mankind. I believe there are seven covenants in the Bible. A covenant is an agreement which is made between two parties. There are obligations and there are benefits involved in covenants. In some, in some covenants in the Bible, God alone is the covenant party. In other words, in some covenants, he makes an unconditional promise to his people. They don't have to meet any obligation at all to reap the benefits of his blessings, his unconditional promise, whatever it might be. But in other cases, he made conditional promises with his people so that they had to fulfill certain uh, conditions and obligations in order to reap the benefits of his promise and his blessings. In verse 18, God is telling Noah that he is going to establish a covenant with him. God, here's the covenant, at least the first part of it. We're going to be told more about this covenant when we get over to chapter 9. 
God says here that he is going to protect Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives in the ark. They will have absolutely nothing to fear, no matter how bad things get outside the ark, you know, in the storms and everything that would go on. They would have nothing to fear with regard to those coming that coming flood of waters because they had God's promise of safety in the storm. The only, I guess we could say the only condition or obligation on the part of Noah in order to reap the benefits of this covenant was that he had to trust God and obey him in actually building the ark that he was told to build in accordance with God's instructions. In his words regarding this covenant, God was really telling Noah, if you look at it, he's really telling him that despite his 120 years of preaching, preaching, preaching to the godless and wicked of that antediluvian world, only seven people besides himself were going to actually enter into the ark. Only seven were going to respond to his preaching of all that time. Now, can you imagine, once again, being in his shoes in such a situation? You know, having been told ahead of time that no one outside of his own wife, three sons, three daughter-in-laws, would be saved from the coming judgment, yet he was very, very faithful to be a preacher of righteousness to the lost for the entire time that it took took him Uh, to construct the ark and the entire time until Methuselah died and then the flood did come. And all I can say again is that is absolutely fantastic obedience. Kind of reminds me of Jeremiah when Jeremiah was told by God to preach, but nobody will listen to you, but you got to be faithful and preach. Face the persecution and everything anyway. But nobody will pre- listen. You know, I, if I think if God told me, Catherine, I want you to teach the Bible, but nobody at all will ever respond <laughs> except maybe a few, a hand, seven people, it, that could kind of really uh, quench your spirit, couldn't it? But here was Noah, faithful, just faithful as he could be. Well, the other details about this covenant, which is known as the Noahic covenant, first covenant we come to in the Bible, Uh, will be revealed to Noah and his family when they actually emerge from the ark. And we'll look at those other um, parts of the covenant when we get to chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. However, the covenant would have been, do know this, it would have been for any other people who would have believed God's word through Noah and would have thereby entered into the ark for, for safety. You know, it would have been for them. But, of course, none of them responded. God's plan of salvation is exactly the same, was exactly the same for the ancient world back then as it is today. Same thing. An individual must simply respond in faith to God's word and then deliberately place his or her trust in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Because that's what God's word is all about, is the coming seed of the woman, the Savior. And that's... All salvation is about. It's very simple. It was the same back then as it is today. To believe in Jesus Christ because he is truly the ark of safety from the storm, from the wrath of God. Is he not? So let's look at him as a beautiful picture in type of the ark. Or the ark is a picture in type of Christ. 
Remember what I told you? I said that the ark was both the shape and um, the shape of a coffin. I might not have said that, but it was the shape of a coffin, you know, that they used to make in the old days, just a box. And it was also made of coffin material, gopher wood. And this speaks of the fact that Christ had to die in order to provide for our redemption. His death makes believers safe from the wrath of God. Well, the pitch, which was uh, used to seal the ark, both inside and out, making it secure from the destruction which fell on all the unjust, the pitch is also a picture of Christ, and it speaks of his shed blood, which seals the believer against the destruction and the judgment, which every person who is not covered with the blood will eventually have to face. He, Christ, bore the judgment for us, didn't he? Oops. He, he paid the atonement or the pitch, the kofer price with his own death and his own shed blood. Furthermore, Um, The one door, and I know you all got this one, the one door into the ark very clearly pictures Christ because there is only one way to safety from judgment. And later on, you know, the the, uh, tabernacle would also have only one entrance. There is only one way to God and to eternal heaven, and that way is by Christ himself. And he made this very clear when he not only said, I am the door by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved in John 10 verse 9. But he also made it crystal clear when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the way, not one of many ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, there were also three stories or three decks on the ark, in, uh, inside the ark. In Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin, present. You know, as soon as you are saved, you are saved from ever having to deal, uh, to pay the penalty of sin which is death. The wages of sin is death. So we're saved, present from the penalty of sin. Also, we're saved from the power of sin. And we, are, we will be one day in glory. We will even be saved from the presence of sin. And then the window of the ark, you know, it was placed up high. It was only one cubit from the top of the ark. So that Noah and his family, you see, would not be focused. If the window was lower, they'd be focused at the corruption and the destruction all around them and beneath them. But by having the window up high, they were focused rather upward, weren't they? They were focused on the God who was saving them. Our affections must be set on those things which are, what, above and not on those things which are on the earth. Also, um, the ark, well, furthermore, too, I don't know if I have this in your notes, but the window speaks, it brought in light, right? And Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Well, the ark was also supplied with abundant rooms or nesting places. 
And in Christ, we have our nesting place. We have our resting place. And he even promised us that right now, while he's absent from us, he is preparing for each and every one of his children an eternal nesting place, which he called in John 14, 2, abiding places or mansions. Each one of us are going to have our eternal nesting place in the ark, which is in Christ Jesus, in the Father's house. Well, while we are on the subject here, this, to me, is the most beautiful part of this picture of Christ. Uh, While we're speaking of the ark being a type of Christ, I want you to skip over to Genesis 8-4. I just couldn't wait to save this one until we got to chapter 8. In Genesis 8, 4, we are told of the day that the ark rested, you know, came to rest on the uh, Mount of Ararat, Mount Ararat, which is, you know, in modern-day Turkey now. That's the day it came to rest. All right, the scripture specifically goes to the trouble to tell us that this was on the 17th day of the seventh month. You see that? The 17th day of the seventh month. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ died on the 14th day of the first month. Oh, you say, oh, well, big deal. Uh, The 14th day of the first month was the day of Passover. No doubt about it. Everybody knows when the Passover was. It was the 14th day of the first month of the religious uh, year. And then three days later, which was on the 17th day of the first month, he rose from the dead. Well, what, what you need to know here is that at the time of Christ, the Jewish civil calendar changed the seventh month to become the first month. Therefore, the, the day that the ark rested from its work of redeeming those within it from the wrath of God was the exact same day, the exact same day, that Jesus Christ, having passed through the waters of judgment, which it actually says he did in Psalm 42, 7, Jesus Christ is speaking and he says, all the waves and thy billows are gone over me. That's the exact same day that he stood in resurrected glory before his followers and said, Peace be unto you. So the ark, I'm not just making it up. (laughs) The ark is a beautiful picture in type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus truly is in Genesis everywhere. Isn't that neat? I never knew that before. That was my golden nugget that I discovered this week as I was studying. Okay, we need to turn now to the subject of the cargo which Noah was instructed to carry with him on the ark. Um, Let's look at verses 19 to 21. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah built it. Oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. I was over in eight. I knew something was weird. I thought, why were they entering out of the ark? haven't even gone in yet. Excuse me, I forgot to go back to chapter 6. Oh, 
And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female of fowls after their kind and of cattle after their kind of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive and thou and take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten and thou shalt gather it to thee and it shall be for food for thee and for them. In these verses, we find God's instructions to Noah regarding the preservation of the animals, which were to be included in the ark. Now, he was told that a male and a female of each kind was to be brought into the ark in order to keep them alive with thee. In addition to carrying a male and a female of all land animals and birds and creeping things, we are going to find out in uh, verse 2 of chapter 7 next week that Noah was also to take seven animals of the clean kind, okay? So it wasn't only just two-by-twos. There were some that were sevens, all right? And they were to be used for domestic purposes and also for sacrifices. Remember when they got off the ark and they built an altar? And even maybe on the ark they offered sacrifices. Well, many people have claimed, and I know you've heard this, that the account of Noah's Ark is absolutely ridiculous because a pair of every kind of living creature could not possibly fit into one vessel. However, what they neglect to do is some simple homework to find out that God designed the Ark perfectly and appropriately to accomplish its task of saving not only Noah and his family, but representatives of all the uh, air-breathing animal species and the food which was necessary to keep them alive so that they could then reproduce in the post-flood world and replenish this earth. Those who are authorities on biological taxonomy tell us that there are something less than 18,000 species of mammals and reptiles, birds, and amphibians in our world today. 18,000. Now, you, um, we, we have to uh, remember that many of these... No, I'll get to that in a minute. All right. Remember that not all species of creatures, living creatures on the earth, had to be in the ark in order to survive. The uh, 20,600 species of fish did not need to be on board the ark in order for some of them, at least some of them, at least a pair of them, (laughs) to survive in order to, you know, repopulate the post-flood earth. Neither did the 1,325 species of tunicates or the 6,000 species of echinoderms or the 107,250 species of mollusks or the 5,380 species of selenterates. Selenterates, it's been a long time since I've had my (laughs) science. The 4,800 species of sponges, the 28,400 species of protozoans, or most of the 39,450 species of worms. Aren't you glad he didn't have to take worms on board? Or the 838,000 species of arthropods. He didn't have to take spiders either. And even, all right, so remember, all those kinds of creatures, here I have a picture, they did not have to be on the ark in order for at least some of their species to survive all the, the flood and everything going on outside the ark. Now, if we take our current number of 18,000 
uh, mammals, the species of mammals and reptiles and birds and amphibians that we have today, if we take that figure, 18,000, and double it, let's just double it for the sake of any animals that might have become extinct since the time of the ark. And don't you think that's being pretty generous? I'm sure we have more than half, but let's double it anyway. And if we again double that amount, which would be 36,000, and if we double that again to get 72,000, we have to double it again because there was a male and a female of each one, right? So we still have a total of only 72,000 creatures who would, which would need to be on the ark. Well, if we add another 3,000 just to be generous and round it off... Um, You're welcome. And to allow for the extra five animals of the clean species that needed to be on the ark, we still have only 75,000 animals. Well, you said, you know, I wouldn't want to be on a boat with 75. That still sounds like a lot of animals. Now, even though most people tend to immediately think of the very large animals, such as giraffes and dinosaurs, because... He would have had to put dinosaurs on the ark, and elephants, and hippopotamuses. Uh, you know, our minds go toward the big ones. The fact of the matter is that there are far more small animals than there are large animals. In fact, the average size of all animals together is slightly less than the size of a sheep. No wonder the Lord calls us sheep. Isn't that neat? I mean, the average size is the size of a sheep. Also, we must remember that the animals did not reproduce while they were on the ark, which tells us that they must have been young. You know, they weren't at the reproduction age yet. And that would make very, very good logic for God to have sent young and therefore small pairs of such creatures as the dinosaurs. You know, dinosaurs are reptiles. Reptiles grow their whole lives and get bigger and bigger. But when they start out, they're relatively small. And to send a small pair of baby elephants and a small pair of baby rhinos. (laughs) If you were God, isn't that what you would do to help Noah out? Um, And really all the creatures. I think I'd send a small pair of even mice and, and all those kinds of things. Now, we said that the the carrying capacity of the ark was equivalent to 522 railroad cars. And since 240 sheep can fit comfortably into one railroad car, this means that the ark could have carried more than 125,000 sheep. However, even using the generous figures that we did, we have demonstrated that Noah would have needed space for only 75,000 species. Now, remember, the average size was that of a sheep. And this means that no more than 60% of the carrying capacity of the ark was needed to uh, house the animals. So there was still 40% space left over for Noah and for the food. Now, an amazing feature which is possessed by most animals and very possibly is latent inside all all animals is their ability to suspend their body changes in a state called hibernation. This incredible, I mean, scientists still really can't figure out how it works, but this incredible 
physiological mechanism enables animals to pass through intense temperature and other climatological changes in very small quarters, you know, like in a little hole in the ground, with very little or almost even no food consumption or bodily waste. Now, it could very well be that the animals which entered into the ark responded to the sudden drastic change in the atmospheric pressure, you know, when everything started to change outside, and the drop in temperature, plus the torrential downpour of rain for the very first time and all the other freakish storm conditions, that they responded by settling down in a year-long state of hibernation, each in their individually prepared little nests. I believe that as they came, they ate a, a big meal right before they got onto the ark, and then when everything started to happen, they went into these states of hibernation. And that certainly, you know, God called Noah to do this tremendous task. But don't you think that God was going to take care of his own, those he wanted to preserve? And I think he took care of them so that Noah, I mean, only eight people. Do you know how much time that would have involved? It probably would have been impossible for eight people to continually feed and and clean up body waste for 75,000 animals. That would be a ter- I don't think God was calling Noah to do that. I think God took care of the animals himself. And this would also explain, if they went into this state of hibernation, why they did not reproduce until they came off of the ark. And um, also, I, I thought about animals. You know, wouldn't they be extremely restless? Can you imagine, after a year, they were on the ark for a year? in the ark with lions and tigers and everything. It would have been total chaos. And God is not the author of confusion. So I do personally believe that this explains what happened, that the animals went into hibernation during that year. Now, something else very quickly that we should notice before we leave these verses is that Noah did not have to worry about how he would go throughout the whole world and catch or gather two of every living creature and bring them into the ark. Notice that God specifically said in verse 20 that the animals would come to Noah. He said, two of every sort shall come unto thee. And this was very probably then the, very, the first great animal migration of history. When the time was ready, God would trigger the migratory instinct within the appropriate species of animals. Probably sensing, you know, as animals can do, when a storm is coming, I'm sure that as they sensed the storm was coming, God triggered the migratory instinct in a pair of each animal and then divinely guided them toward the safety of Noah's awaiting ark. Well, the concurrence, verse 22, and we'll finish, it says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. With this verse, we once again come back to the godliness of the man named Noah. He did according to all that God commanded him. And that is a fantastic, fantastic testimony the more you think about it. He evidenced 
the genuineness of his faith in God and in God's word regarding salvation by his obedience to all the very strange things that God had commanded him to do. And he didn't question anything. Not one word do we hear from Noah questioning any of this. He simply believed and he got busy doing his tremendously difficult task. And it not only was difficult physically, but it was difficult in that it had to be so discouraging um, because he knew all the while that he was building that tremendous craft that only seven other people besides himself would be saved among a world of literally millions. He would be mocked and he would be ridiculed and he would be scoffed and he would be persecuted, but he didn't complain or question God. He merely obeyed.